Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, author, educator, and performer Sahima Mansur Khan discusses her poetry collection, Postcolonial Banter. Writing the book required Sahima to bring her performance poetry to the page for the first time. In this episode, she speaks candidly about the challenges of that transition, her slowly emerging writing process, and her visibility and responsibilities as a Muslim woman writer in the public eye. Give me a second to have a think. So I'm going to read a poem from my collection that is called Voices Roll Over the Charpai. It's a poem that I wrote for Allah Jawai, who is a woman from Pakistan who has now passed away. Um, I wrote it whilst I was living in Pakistan for about three months in 2018, I believe. And it's a poem that I don't really get a lot of chance to read. So yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity to read it. It's actually been a long time. The only people I want to fall in love with me are older women. Not the kind that say I should wear more dresses, but the kind with cracked fingertips and black heels, the kind who can crouch between their legs and be at home. Her naked calves in my naked hands, she looks to the window and says, Tanu milker sanu bari The shy offering urges me to take the plunge, and the plunge feels more like floating. So I reach into it, squeezing the flesh of her right lower leg. I say, adamantly focusing my eyes on her shin. After nothing, she says, Like an exhale, her words clasp mine in a way that makes the walls sigh at last. I keep kneading below her knees, feeling both our lungs lighten. Time sits up straight. Every bird cranes ears through the window. The smell of coconut oil on my hands cocoons us, and the room is full of silence by a more delicate name. I do not need the love of anyone but old women. Want only the secret glances and two-eyed winks of old women. Only ache for the touch of hands with translucent skin. Want only their laughter and half-toothed smiles. In the morning, Nani revels in the sounds of the street, reminds me that in England there is no Ronak like this, no Ronak like crushing peanuts in your palms by the roadside, no Ronak like the type that emanates from her jawline. I remind her that in England there is no sitting like this either, with traffic washing over you like lullabies, with onions and sun cream ingrained in your fingers. I do not need the love of anyone but old women, want only their affirmations and to bask in their brown, want only their strange remedies and fond shrugging nods. Voices roll over the charpai like brown hands making roti. I understand like traces and if I close my eyes I see orange. Three echoes of brown feet crouch in the weaves, we are the sunlight on the roof. Birds circle making handi of the sky and laughter washes over us like wudu. I do not need the love of anyone but old women, want only their eyes on me when I kick my legs up to the sky, want only their eyes on me as the adhan dances through pink edges of the air. 
When I leave, I cry all the way home. I cry in the silence of a taxi ride, our six legs pressed together for a last time. I cry in the darkness of the plane, sat between two old women who aren't them. I watch her embrace me a thousand times, the flight of her kiss on my head never quite the same. I feel the tears rise again. We stand apart in silence again. She wipes her eyes with her shawl again and we drive to the airport in silence again. Sunlight shakes my hand through the plane window for a last time. I cry into my diary for a last time. Something about me is smaller. A piece left behind. A breaking heart is a beautiful price to pay though. To get to leave a piece behind. The only people I want to fall in love with me are old women. Writing poetry was definitely not something that I had always wanted to do, necessarily. I think partly because it wasn't something I even realised was something that, you know, you could aspire to want to do. And I think, secondly, I just wasn't that interested in poetry. I thought it was something really boring at school that you had to study and you had to do it. And I, re I really enjoyed English like as a subject, but I found poetry the most boring part, for sure. And I made a distinction in my head completely between that, what was called poetry, and then what I did really enjoy, which was like on YouTube watching slam poetry and button poetry and being influenced, I suppose, by like the hip-hop and rap that my uncle in particular was really into and I, I found that stuff really like cool and interesting and there's like wordplay going on and there's performance and there's people refuting and resisting narratives about themselves through language through words but again I didn't think that was something that I could do and I didn't really think of that within the same ballpark as poetry which obviously is just because of how we hierarchize and think about kind of authenticity when it comes to poetry. But um, my journey was really just that when I was at university, I was struggling with my mental health. So this was during my second year of studying at Cambridge University. And I think I had managed to get through a lot of first year with this idea that it's only three years. I don't need to talk to anyone. It's okay if it feels isolating, you know, three years is not a long time. And then I think I entered second year feeling like one year was a really long time. I don't know if I can just continue like this. And I think the feeling was just, it's really hard to put yourself in your own shoes sometimes, isn't it? But I think it was the feeling of hypervisibility mixed with like invisibility and just that contradiction of being so aware of myself and my presence in this very white very elite space but also feeling very unseen and so I was depressed and my college counsellor suggested that I do something that I have always wanted to do but that I maybe thought that I couldn't do and she was probably the first person that I mentioned that I love watching these videos on YouTube but I, I don't think I could ever do that and she signed me up to an open mic night, which I had never heard of before. I didn't know what an open mic night was. And she said that, you know, I should go and I didn't need to tell anybody, but that I had to read a poem. And I didn't have any poems. So <laughs> I was, okay, let me, I suppose, what, what felt important to write in that moment. And I think trying to copy the style of lots of these videos, like I say, that I had seen. And I think in a way, 
that felt to me more natural than had somebody been like, you need to write a poem for the page only. I think there's some natural kind of maybe rhythm or pattern to speech or orality that feels much easier and more accessible to me. Female, Muslim, Asian. I'm almost the very antonym of the average person whose obtrusive normality defies defining, or the he in any anecdote who requires a description. You know the one. Straight, white, male. If only I was gay too. At first, they encourage you up the steps, the ladder, smiling. You smile back, unaware that their smiles are not meant for you. They smile at what you represent, what you represent to them. A nice new cover photo for the school magazine. <laughs> An exemplar story about diversity. A tick in the box of inclusivity. An eight-week poster picture about equal opportunity. I went and I performed and I loved it and it was received really well and there was just this kind of this feeling I didn't expect to have of the dialogue I suppose between I, yeah I think I didn't expect it to feel like a two-way thing I thought it would just be you know you perform and it's consumed but I think what I really and I still to this day really enjoy about performing your own words with poetry is that it does feel like a dialogue and it really varies depending on who's in the room and the body language and the speaking and the the pacing and the breathing I mean it's just interesting to think about what I chose to write as well because what I chose to write for that very first open mic was um looking back it's like super cringy but for me at that time it obviously meant a lot and it was just you know those very basic ideas around the signifiers that I understand my body is attached to when I'm seen through the gaze of others and that's not who I am and I think you know articulating that meant a lot to me at that time because it was basically a way I think of engaging in my own autonomy and creating a narrative for myself which I suppose has always been something that's important in all of my poetry but that I wouldn't have been able to articulate like that at that time and I think that did help in terms of my mental health because there's that element of ownership and there's that element of seeing myself for myself rather than and regardless of having to bend to the gazes of others or explain myself to those gazes or shrink myself to them and so it probably did. And I think as any form of self-expression usually helps people when we're struggling with any kind of mental health issues, I think it was just an outlet to express. And so, yeah, from then on, I took part in more open mic nights. I became part of the university slam team. And then I took part in the, the National Roundhouse Poetry Slam in 2017. And it was from there really that poetry became a kind of option in the sense that my poem went viral in a way that I could never have anticipated. But good GCSEs, family and childhood memories are not the only things that count as a life. Living is. So this will not be a Muslims are like us poem. I refuse to be respectable. Instead, love us when we're lazy. Love us when we're poor. Love us in our back-to-backs, council estates, depressed, unwashed and weeping. Love us high as kites, unemployed, joyriding, time-wasting, failing at school. Love us filthy, without the right colour passports, without the right sounding English. Love us silent, unapologising, shopping in Poundland, skiving off school, unsure, homeless, sometimes violent. Love us when we aren't athletes, when we don't bake cakes, when we don't offer our homes or free taxi rides after the event, when we're wretched, suicidal, naked and contributing nothing. Love us then, because if you need me to prove my humanity, I'm not the one that's not human.
My mother... On the back of that, people assumed that I had more poems and that I did this regularly and this was something that I could do. And I, I just kind of went along with that momentum. And um, even so, I don't think I would have anticipated writing writing a collection. And so that was also a weird step that really came about because actually of another piece of work that I had been working on that I wanted to publish. And that was a collection of essays with women of colour who I was at university with, A Fly Girl's Guide to University. And that was about our experiences at Cambridge. And we were looking for a publisher basically that was grassroots, that wouldn't, you know, force us to edit the collection and, and that kind of thing. And, and we found this poetry press in Birmingham, the poetry press, who were quite willing to be flexible and open with us and collaboratively publish. So it was only on the back of that that, you know, they said, oh, you know, we've seen your work as well. And would you be interested in writing a collection? And that, I think that was really the first time that it occurred to me that that's something I could do. And I, I did feel nervous about it because I think I still maintained this distinction between a written collection and the performance of poetry. And I think that there was something around the ownership of it that I felt much safer when it's in my voice, in my hands, through my speech, through my body language. And that's something I'm always so aware of, that poetry, I think, as an oral culture, always feels different to me than as a kind of written and read thing. So I don't know why I agreed to do it in the end. I guess it just <laughs> it seemed like it would be silly not to. I had a lot of poems and they were so disorganized, notes on my phone, scraps of paper here and there, like a, a random notebook that I started, my laptop. And it was about, yeah, selection. Is there an overarching theme to the collection? Is it just, these are all my poems that I've ever written? What am I going to include in it and what am I not? And where do I begin? Where do I end? And how do I include those poems that really feel like performance pieces more than written pieces and is there a way on the page that I can show where I would breathe where I would pause those kinds of things like in with some of my poems I have such an embodied memory of it you know it's like I know exactly where I'm gonna raise my hand I know exactly where I'm gonna breathe or pause because it's just I've performed it that many times and I think it was really weird to think about what would that look like on a page and how do I convey that if you're trying to convey like a crescendo or you're trying to like build up that momentum and that pace that you would have in a room with people, I think ends up just looking like a list. I end up just doing loads of lists. And so I think that was a bit challenging, particularly with some of the like bigger poems. And in a way, then sometimes you end up with just these blocks of text, which again, don't really reflect like what happens when you're giving it the pacing and the rhythm. I think there were edits that I did make specifically for the sake of them being written. And it's hard for me to remember what they were because with some of my poems, they've kind of evolved just with the performance so you know you cut words because actually that doesn't fit the internal rhyme scheme or like that just doesn't work that feels a bit weird and I think even actually sometimes now when I perform a poem if I read it at the same time it really throws me off because I think there are some kind of lines and some words and stuff and phrasings that I've included in the written version that actually isn't in my remembered spoken version so I even struggled then with like grammar and punctuation and like italicizing and all of these things which I you don't have to really think about in the same way. I think if the writing process is also like a, a speaking process. And I think previously I had edited through my own practicing speaking. That I found way more helpful than putting it on the page, which I, in a way I found 
difficult and then I, I think in a way there was like an imposter syndrome there as well in terms of like oh what's the right thing to do like should I have punctuation what's the correct way of writing poetry on the page and also I, I think I use a lot of like irony sarcasm to some degree and I, th I think maybe I wanted to over emphasize that in the writing just to make it clear so questions about okay do I use quotation marks around certain words do I italicize them do I put a full stop and so I think that was actually a bit tricky and I don't know if I got that quite right but I think it's bound up with my own kind of insecurities and vulnerabilities around like am I authentically a poet which I think you know raises all <laughs> sorts of other questions around those distinctions and hierarchies. We'll be right back. The English department at Queen Mary University of London is proud to partner with Wasafiri magazine on Craft Podcast. We are committed to supporting hashtag inclusive English in our MA English literature and undergraduate programs. We champion marginalized and underrepresented writers in our curriculum approaches, teaching and research. Find out more about what we do by following at QMULSED and at craft underscore podcast on Twitter. I think it's only in recent years that I've gone, oh, this is my process. I've listened to authors and I've listened to writers who, you know, they wake up at 6am and they write and then they do this thing and then they have chamomile tea and then, you know, and it's like, and I think I thought for a long time that this is what process is. But I think if anything, my process is not just with poetry, but with any form of writing, I overwrite that's like first and foremost that is what I'm good at is like overtelling overseeing I would say with nearly everything I would probably write double the amount and I you know I mean don't want to psychoanalyze myself but I think there's something in there about the fear of the point not getting through and like being really so keen to to tell and to show and to be sure that you have really understood and so I think a big I'd say the biggest part of my process is actually just cutting down and this is why this speaking helps and so even with my prose when I write Everything that I write, I read aloud to myself. And that is actually where I do the editing because because I think when we hear other others speak, that's where certain lines land with us or certain ideas become clearer to us. So I would stand in front of the mirror and I'd kind of have the bones of the poem, but then it's like where I can feel a crescendo coming, it'd be like, actually here I should, you know, add a lot more stuff or here I've basically said that three different times and there's no need for that. Or actually it feels like there's a word missing here and again I think there's some level of inauthenticity that you can feel about that because it's like is that a real process or is that just like me messing around and I it was it's interesting because it's only recently and I can't remember who it was it was like a poet that I was yeah uh, listening to in a workshop and it was really interesting because I think in my head I had kind of put them on this pedestal of like real poet and they were talking about their editing process and they were just saying like, you know, I have a really natural sense of rhythm and that's how I edit my work is that I'll just read it back to myself, figure out like, does that feel right? Does that not? And it's just interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you hear someone else say something, it suddenly like, validates and like professionalizes your process, which previously you haven't necessarily articulated. Yeah. Now I'm not so scared when I write something for the first time and it's, you know, thousands of words. I'm like, oh no, this is just what I do. This is fine. Like this is, it will come down. When I started writing poetry specifically, I found myself constantly inspired. And I think I was always inspired by like anger. A lot of my well-received poems or like the ones that I enjoy performing the most are ones 
that almost the impetus for it was like that this is what I wish I'd said in that conversation or whatever but I feel like as time has gone by I find it harder and harder to feel inspired to write those kinds of poems and maybe that's just because of I don't know what my thought process is different now or whatever but yeah I, I kind of went from finding commissions really difficult to now I actually find it useful almost to have like a discreet like remit of the poem like it has to speak to these things just like having a boundary I feel a lot more meandering than kind of where I used to write these very like pointed deliberate this is the purpose of this poem this is the thing I want to direct it towards this is the anger I'm feeling school inspectors in England have been told to start asking young girls in primary school why they are wearing a hijab in order to ascertain if they're being sexualized you say you care about Muslim girls as if you care about the Muslim women they are standing in the pasts of. You say you care about the sexualization of Muslim girls, as if you don't turn a blind eye to the Islamophobic misogyny which sees cries like, give us a flash, leveled at women in hijab and niqab. You say you care about the sexualization of Muslim girls as if you care about the sexualization of girls, as if you do not facilitate the categorization of the sexual future of babies' lives when you call them girls. You say you care about the sexualization of Muslim girls as if we are victims of parents who are simultaneously sexually repressed and hypersexual. Not so different from your colonial wet dreams which thaws as both sensual eastern mysteries and suicide bomber threats. You know, it's this irony, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I feel that, you know, the less experience you have and the less information also maybe, the easier it is to make quite bold and brave claims and easier it is to be courageous maybe and I think the more that you see and learn and witness and watch and grow unfortunately maybe it is fear maybe it's or maybe it's just gray area is always so much bigger and expanding and I think my poetry is nuanced I don't think it's simplistic but I do also feel like I find it harder and harder to express the kind of full nuances of everything I would like to say in the same way that I once was able to and so you know maybe that's actually a form of growth and maybe that's fine but I sometimes do reflect on like wow I don't think I could just write uh, one of these kind of performance pieces so quickly as I used to and with so much kind of fervor and energy. Something that people have asked me about is why I included the footnotes um, and why my own bio in the book is the length that it is. I feel like I've been so aware of my visibility as a Muslim woman and the things that I say and the things that I do, but particularly publicly. And I think maybe it's palpable now when I read it back, but it felt to me it really mattered exactly and specifically how I said the things that I said in this book and being misread and misunderstood was something I was really wanting to make impossible almost because I think misrecognition is like a form of violence that we face as racialized people all the time and when I perform a set right you go up and first you're introduced who is the person that we're listening to like who is who's coming onto the stage now and then it's the okay so you know the reason I wrote this poem I was sitting in a cafe and then this thing happened and that thing happened and I feel like my whole experience of poetry was those spaces where, in fact, in sometimes in a po in a poet set, like the poems can make up a very small part of it, and a lot of it is like dialogue and conversation and anecdote. I'm going to tell you a bit about my mom, and now I'm gonna now I'm gonna read the poem. And I, it's interesting because I'm just wondering like how much of that fed into my 
imagining of like when I want the poetry to kick in and kind of what I need you to know first. And I suppose through all of that is my desire to control the terms upon which I'm read. And so giving like this long bio is to contextualize like these poems are a manifestation of knowledge that I have gathered through all these experiences, which may be deemed not forms of knowledge or not places where knowledge is gained, but actually to me they are. And I name myself first as an educator and, and last as a poet, because I think also for me, what I wanted this collection to do was quite clearly political and I didn't want to shy away from that. And I'm wanting to lay claim to that and say that this is to me like an educative and I hope not didactic, but like educative tool, or at least like providing people with an articulation of something that they might already know to be true. And I think the, especially the, the boxes or the footnotes or whatever we want to call them that I've included, like some of them include like reading lists, right? There's like materials that you might want to further study. And I think that's also partly because I think there's, there's a kind of honesty to that in the sense that, especially when I was studying my master's, like a lot of the poems that I was writing were almost like reflections and synopses on the things that I was studying and the articles and the books that I was reading and poetry was like a my way of expressing and manifesting those things and so it was like I want other people to have access to those those things and the other thing I think was that my own in my own experience I didn't grow up reading poetry collections and I think I didn't want anybody to approach the collection feeling that it was inaccessible in the way that I might have had I picked up a poetry collection and that was really important to me. And it's interesting because I think I've, I've had a couple of people in feedback say to me that initially I was a bit dubious about like, why have you included so much information about your poems? It isn't a part of the you know fun that we guess and figure it out. But then saying upon reflection, actually, it's not that you're explaining so much about like your intentions or why you wrote it, but that you're trying to give context that actually does make it more accessible. And I hope that's true. And I hope that has Veltrin, sometimes I just include a really small box that's more just like, this is what I would have said had I had the chance to introduce the poem to you. It felt like more than just a poetry collection in that sense that it was like, this is also my like contribution to discourse, I suppose. It felt like many people and thoughts had fed into that and shaped that. And in a way, because the poems that are in the collection span like a six, seven, eight year period, it also felt like it was incumbent upon me to thank people who'd contribute to that in all sorts of different ways and that was to kind of reflect on the mass of thought that had gone into that specifically directly into the collection or just kind of into me being able to express myself in different ways or think in different ways that then fed into the poems that are in the collection if those things weren't a part of the collection I think I would feel uncomfortable I think it would feel to me less safe and I think that's partly a reflection of my own projections of like insecurity but I think that is also a reflection of just not feeling like I do have much control over how I am viewed a lot of times and that for me my voice is like the only place that I can lay some boundaries some claims some kind of guidelines into the way I want to be read and on what terms I want to be seen and sometimes even what I was talking about that process like overtelling I think a lot of that is to do with just a desire to have some control in a situation where you have very little as soon as you're an object that's being seen and consumed. For me as a Muslim, like what's always important is this idea that you're accountable. You are accountable for the things that you do. And so with that said, then being asked to write a poetry collection, it becomes more than just like a 
oh cool awesome I would love to share my work and it for me personally at least becomes like I'm now accountable for this as a response this is a responsibility upon me it's a trust upon me that this is an opportunity I've been given and what's the impact of it if I could like almost measure the every person who reads this book or everywhere that it goes you know what kind of impact is it having and I think that's why a lot of the decisions I made then in terms of what the kind of other things I wanted people to take from it other than just the poems I suppose how much of what I believe to be working towards the goodness or the justice that I I believe is incumbent upon me as a Muslim or directing people towards truth or perseverance which are like in and of themselves those are good deeds right like guiding others to truth or kind of encouraging others to truth and so sometimes when I foreground I am a Muslim as the first thing that I say it's also actually more of a reminder to me and I think in a way it's because if I'm being very candid I'm very blessed that people are very kind about my work often and I think there's a lot of social capital that I've gained as a result of performance and you as an individual your identity gets associated with these kind of cool things right like oh you sit so high you know you say brave things you say cool things and I think in a way I say that to remind myself that like any goodness in what I do or any of the skills or gifts that I have are just blessings upon me they're not of my own doing and I mean that's a religious tenet right that like you don't earn the things that you have but they're they're tests and blessings so it's like what will you do with them and so in a way I think a lot of what manifests as the process of putting the book together is also me you know five times a day kind of thinking to myself when I'm speaking to God okay when you ask me on the day of judgment like okay so you had an opportunity to speak to thousands of people you performed your poem I mean what okay so what what did you say and I think that that's something that I think about a lot the responsibility of that and a book is something that lasts. It's all, Once it's in print, it's not in your hands. It's in other people's homes. They can read it wherever they want to read it. And I think that's why I also put a lot of thought into exactly how I wanted to say the things I wanted to say, because you can't take words back as well, right? And I think, again, as a believer, as a Muslim, as someone who believes in a day of accountability or a time of reckoning post this life, then that's, that's important too, because you're going to be accountable for what you said. So I think because it's such a different paradigm, I never really get the opportunity to speak about that. And I think also the sensibilities of a kind of secular liberal arts world, you almost have to hide those thought processes, right? It's like they're not even kind of um, translatable. Craft is brought to you by Wasafiri Magazine and Queen Mary, University of London, with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Asaraji. Emma Barnaby does our production, editing, and sound design. And the interviews and the introduction were done by me, Malachi McIntosh. With this episode of Craft, we bid farewell to our administrator, Afsana Nishat, who has been instrumental in the development of this show. Thank you for everything, Afsana. Safe travels. And everyone else, including Afsana, see you next month.